The devastation of Hurricane Dorian dominates the news this week, with reports of damage, lives lost, and possibly more to come as the storm hits the United States. People were told to evacuate. The hope is the infrastructure they've left behind will survive the onslaught of heavy winds, pounding rain, unrelenting storm surge, and expected flooding. This is Hard Facts. I'm Robert Johnson. Also in the news recently was a guest column written by a journalist pitching a book, published in Time magazine, blaming concrete for the urban heat island and suggesting a poor grade for infrastructure by America's civil engineers somehow was because, as a construction material, it doesn't last forever. Anyone who knows anything about concrete, its properties, and its history probably got a good laugh from the article, its arguments sorely mistaken. Given the errors contained in the Time magazine column, we thought it would be good to spend a few minutes with a research scientist at MIT to get the facts the article didn't provide. Here's our conversation about these issues with Dr. Jeremy Gregory, Executive Director of the Concrete Sustainability Hub at the Massachusetts Institute of Technology in Cambridge, Mass. You spend a lot of time studying concrete and all of its properties. Yes, I do. spend a lot of time uh, studying uh, concrete and not only the material itself, but also how decisions are made that involve concrete, like about buildings and pavements and uh, infrastructure. You're not making assumptions. You are practicing science. That's right. Everything we try and do is quantitative, whether that be quantitative aspects about the sustainability or about engineering or about uh, economics. And MIT is no slouch. I mean, what we're trying to get at here is that what we're about to engage in is a conversation based in facts. Absolutely. We don't make a statement unless we really feel like that our research can back up the things that we want to say. Some folks have done that recently as it relates to two things. One, concrete being the reason for the urban heat island. And two, concrete not being very durable. We thought we would take on both of those one at a time with a little bit of fact to dispel the fiction behind each of these issues. Let's start with the urban heat island. What does science say about concrete as it relates to that concern? Sure. Well, the urban heat island effect, it basically just means that when you take temperatures in an urban area, they are elevated compared to temperatures that are in the surrounding rural areas. Um, And this is a very real effect that definitely occurs in our urban areas. But these areas are made with all kinds of different materials. And concrete is certainly a big one. We use it in a lot of our buildings and bridges and some of our pavements as well. But there are many other materials that we use as well. You know, over 90% of the roads in this country are made from asphalt. We have buildings that are made from steel and wood. And so there are many different factors that come together to make this. And we also spend a lot of energy also lighting and heating and cooling our buildings as well. So there's all kinds of different anthropogenic uh, activities that contribute to this urban heat island effect. And certainly the way that we construct our buildings can trap heat that's generated during the day, but the same thing can happen with our pavements. 
And in particular, if we have very dark colored pavements, then they absorb a lot of that heat and also end up retaining this. And so there are many different factors that go into the contributions to this uh, urban heat island effect. And certainly concrete plays a role in that, but it's also, it's much more complicated involving many different materials and many other practices as well. Do automobile emissions have a role as well? Automobiles generate heat. That's basically what what, what they do. Uh, you know, gasoline engines do that. So to some extent, it can be the emissions that can trap in heat, but a lot of it is just they end up being a source of heat as well. The assertion then that it's all concrete's fault is just baloney. It's not, it's not accurate. It's not based in anything other than an assumption. Absolutely. There isn't a lot of science that I've seen to say that it's entirely because of concrete. Uh, as I mentioned, you know, that certainly does play a role, but there are so many other factors that we can go after to try to mitigate it beyond just concrete. In fact, concrete holds less heat, doesn't it, than other materials? The amount of heat that's retained in a material involves uh, a couple different factors. One of them has to do with the thermal mass, and concrete can end up retaining heat because of that thermal mass. But another element of the amount of heat that's retained has to do with the albedo or the reflectivity of the pavement. And concrete has a higher albedo compared to a lot of uh, construction materials. So as a consequence, it can actually also reflect a lot of heat as well. And so designers basically have this challenge about balancing the amount of heat that concrete can absorb because of its thermal mass with also its opportunity to reflect heat. And this is why in urban areas, how we think about this depends on whether we're talking about buildings or pavements and bridges. Uh, in the case of pavements and bridges, actually, that higher reflectivity can really help mitigate urban heat island effects. And in buildings, we actually don't often have that much exposed concrete. And so there are different ways that we can also help to mitigate even the degree to which the concrete retains heat in, in buildings. When you're using concrete to build a road, there is also this idea of hardness and the ability to reduce friction, which causes less energy consumption, which I assume, not being a scientist here, also could help reduce the overall amount of heat going into the atmosphere. The way we design and maintain our pavements affects the fuel consumption of the vehicles that drive on those pavements. So certainly stiffer and smoother pavements can really help with that. And concrete can definitely be designed in ways to meet those objectives. We have this other benefit, as I mentioned, that uh, it, you know it sort of naturally has a relatively high albedo compared to other engineered materials so that it can also be designed to reflect radiation back up into the atmosphere rather than trapping it in urban areas. So there are ways that we can design it in order to accomplish multiple objectives related to both the climate and also temperatures in urban areas. So the trapping is a big part of this problem then, when the heat stays and sort of leaks out over a longer period of time? It's a combination of a few different things. One of it is, yes, we do often retain heat in our 
buildings and in our pavements. And the extent to which that heat is retained depends on uh, which surfaces are exposed to the outdoors, but also the ways in which we heat and cool our buildings. And so it's often hard to just kind of come up with one specific solution for these areas. But I can say that if buildings and pavements are designed in the right ways, we can definitely make solutions that address both climate and also temperature-related goals as well. And and I think a, a good example is actually, you know, paving surfaces can be designed such that they're permeable so that rather than having water kind of roll off to the side, they actually can absorb water and let it filter through. And this is a great way to take off a bunch of the load from the storm system, particularly in high rainfall situations. And one of the benefits of that, that water that's actually retained in the pavements then evaporates and that acts as an additional cooling mechanism. But we often don't think of our roads or our parking lots as an opportunity to provide that kind of storm mitigation mitigation control, but also temperature mitigation as well. So that's kind of what I mean by there are solutions that are available, but we have to expand the scope of the way that we think about these. Have you been involved in any studies or do you know of any studies that would give us some sense of the difference in terms of temperature, uh, heat retention, heat reflection between different materials, including concrete? We've definitely done studies to show that increasing pavement albedo can lower temperatures in urban areas. And it kind of depends on what kind of area that you're talking about and, you know, the extent of the change in albedo or the reflectivity. But that can change temperatures in urban areas by half a degree or a degree, which doesn't maybe sound like much, but we can connect those to uh, human health studies to show the potential to actually save lives to prevent heat-related deaths by lowering those temperatures. So those are very real effects. And you can either do that by changing the color of the paving materials, for example, just the ways in which you do the mixtures. As I mentioned, concrete has a naturally sort of highly reflective surface compared to other materials, or it can also be done with coatings. And coatings have been applied to pavements in other regions as well. Let's shift over now to this question of durability of concrete. I don't think anyone expects any building material to last forever, but concrete does last a pretty long time. Yeah, just like with any type of material, you can design it so that it's durable, or you can also design it in ways such that it's not very durable. Concrete is one of those ones where it's hard not to make it durable, although there are, uh, you know, some bad actors who sometimes gimp on certain areas and it ends up being that way. But overall, yes, these are the structures that we see lasting, uh, you know, thousands of years that we have from the Romans. And certainly we see lots of buildings that we have that are still around because the material is so durable. And that's because it's literally made out of rock, right? We just have a way to kind of glue these rocks together. And uh, as long as we can make sure that glue sticks together for a long time, it's going to be very effective. And that's usually what we do when it comes to concrete. Because you'll see some bridges that are 50, 60 years old, maybe more. They're still doing the job. We want to try to replace those as as we can afford to do so. But uh, connecting 
that issue, uh, the issue of investment with the durability of concrete, it's a little bit like uh, comparing apples to oranges. It doesn't seem to be a very good comparison. Uh, it's certainly not accurate. Just like uh, any investment that you make, if you make the right investment up front and then take care of that investment over time, it's going to last for a really long time. When I say invest in it properly, that means that, you know, use the right kind of concrete mixtures for the right job and then also make sure that it's preserved properly as well. There are times when, you know, particularly places that are exposed to weather and extreme environments, it is possible for damage to occur. But if that's caught early on and then maintained, it should be able to last for a long time. And then there's the whole issue of resiliency. We're uh, watching over this past weekend into this week the hurricane that's bearing down on Florida and the Carolinas. Concrete holds up. Other materials don't. It's very easy to design resilient structures with concrete. And it just has to do with its strength, its stiffness, and also the fact that it won't degrade based on exposure to water. That means that you can absolutely design buildings to withstand hurricanes by building in concrete. You still, though, have to really take a holistic approach when doing those designs. For example, if you have very good concrete walls, but you have a poor connection between your wooden roof and your concrete walls, well, then If the roof then comes off, your home is damaged by water and wind, even though the concrete walls are standing, you know, people aren't going to consider that a success. So you really need to make sure that your roof connections are strong and that you're using the appropriate windows and doors, because a lot of times that's where you can get a lot of the damage. So having that holistic approach to design is really critical when it comes to hazard resistant uh, structures. What kind of studies are you doing at MIT regarding durability of concrete or ranking it against other building materials. Are you doing any work like that that you could share with us? Give us another perspective. Yeah, what we do a lot is, particularly when it comes to hazard resistance, is look at what are the benefits of investing more in resilience. So, for example, what we like to do is look at uh, comparisons of more conventional designs and then hazard resistant designs. And the hazard-resistant designs, you know, usually will have uh, maybe slightly higher initial costs and not necessarily a lot, maybe 5% more. But then we also estimate the amount of damage that would likely occur in that structure over time due to hazards. Uh, And so basically, uh, we compare the amount of damage you would get from a conventional structure and a hazard-resistant structure. And of course, in the hazard-resistant structure, we expect a lot less damage. So what we can do is estimate how much of a benefit you get from that more hazard-resistant structure. And we show, like in some residential cases, that the more hazard-resistant structure, you know, has a payback period of within five years. It's really pretty easy to make the case that increased investment in these types of more resilient construction is very much worthwhile. So it's not only a little bit cooler, a little bit stronger, a little bit more resilient in cases of bad weather, but it makes economic sense too. Absolutely. You just have to be willing to take that 
life cycle perspective. And for people who are owning buildings, it seems like that's a no-brainer. Of course, the challenge is that the people who do the initial construction and the owners, they're not always aligned or maybe, you know, aren't communicating when that first design happens. So I think that's a big push for us is to try to educate people who are going to be buying buildings such that they demand a more hazard resistant building and know that they can ask for that and what some of the uh, benefits are for that. So, you know, just like people now ask for a LEED certified building, you know, how do we also get them to ask for a resilient building as well? And all of this is backed up with peer-reviewed science. Yes, absolutely. The research that we do, we submit it to academic journals so that the peer review process can take place because that's uh, really important for us. As I mentioned, we want to be quantitative about these things and make sure that when we make a statement, we have some analyses to back it up. So when goofy statements are made, to the contrary, how do you think that happens? Is it just lack of research? It's hard to say in a lot of these cases, but I think that it's appealing to develop a narrative uh, and then see what information you can find to back up that narrative. And oftentimes, as someone who's reviewing this, it's hard for other people to assess whether or not those other sources really back up uh, claims. That's why it's incumbent upon us who engage in this kind of dialogue to try to uh, set the record straight by saying, you know, actually here's what some of our work shows, or, um, you know, here are some other things to consider. Jeremy Gregory, we appreciate some concrete facts in this conversation, pun fully intended. Thanks for your time. Good. It was my pleasure. Next week, we'll hear from the American Society of Civil Engineers about the grade it gave the nation's infrastructure and what criteria was used to evaluate roads, bridges, runways, and other projects. The Association's Director of Infrastructure Initiatives unpacks the oft-quoted report card during a visit to the Hardfax studio. That's Wednesday, September 11th on Hard Facts, a podcast production of the Portland Cement Association. I'm Robert Johnson. I'll see you then.